Just a couple of announcements before we begin today. First of all, I don't see Barry Millsaps here today, but Barry has been our deacon chair for several years, and Barry has just done an outstanding job and has provided so much organization and leadership in that area. And we are going to give Barry a break in the coming year. And our brother Ben Pierce has agreed to become our deacon chair. So at some point in 2024, we will be making the transition from Barry to Ben. And uh, that won't probably all that visible to you all, but that'll be happening this year in 2024. And uh, we also need to reduce the average age of our deacons. They're getting some age on them. I won't say how old the average is, but uh, we would like for the church to consider bringing on a new deacon, and that is uh, Will Reed, and Will Reed does a tremendous job around here with all kinds of things and is heavily involved already in the landscape, and we have some needs there, so Will has agreed to allow us to vote on him. So in a few weeks, we will take a vote on Will Reed, and uh, if that passes, we will bring down the average age. Right, Mark? <laughs> I'm just, just teasing Mark back there. All right, well, let's turn to John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, we are with Jesus in the upper room. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He has predicted Judas's betrayal. And Judas has now gone out into the dark night to launch his diabolical scheme. Jesus has given the new commandment. And he has predicted Peter's denial. Jesus has eaten the Passover meal and has explained the coming of the Holy Spirit. And at the end of chapter 14, Jesus told his disciples, rise, let us go from here. But don't picture Jesus exiting the upper room quite yet. Picture Jesus now standing up from the table preparing to leave, but he will not actually depart for the Garden of Gethsemane until we reach chapter 18. Chapters 15 and 16 concern Jesus' final words as he stands with his disciples in the upper room on the verge of opening the door. He will take his final journey to the cross. Chapter 17 is his prayer. The fact that Jesus then is now standing, preparing to depart, communicates something of the urgency of the hour, but also of his desire to make use of his final moments with his disciples. And instead of thinking about himself and the fate that immediately awaits him, Jesus' focus is on the twelve, or on eleven at this point, even while he prepares for his final Passover journey. It's also quite possible that Jesus is sovereignly timing his exit, waiting for Judas to complete his dastardly scheme so they can rendezvous at Gethsemane. So, what will Jesus say now as he prepares to exit? In the first 11 verses of John 15, Jesus will use the same term, abide, ten times. Let's read the text. Verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, Jesus knows that everything is about to change for these disciples. After his death and resurrection, his appearances will be sporadic before ceasing altogether. What will keep them from disillusionment and defection? Well, what they need most is to actively abide in Jesus Christ. Even after he's gone, they must abide in him. And the word abide simply means to remain or to continue. So picture the scene. Jesus has now celebrated a final meal with his disciples. Things are calm in the upper room. But just outside the door, the world is full of conspiracy and evil. And as soon as Jesus reaches and opens the door and steps out into that dark night, everything will change. The disciples will long for the day when they can sit down for a quiet meal with Jesus, but Jesus stands and he moves for the door. I'm reminded of that line from Bilbo Baggins in The Lord of the Rings who said, It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. How will the disciples keep their feet on the road and their hearts engaged in the mission that Jesus has appointed for them? There is only one possible way. They have to remain or abide in Christ. Now keep a finger here, and let's turn back to Luke chapter 22, and let me show you a little piece of the conversation in the upper room that John omits but it does shape our thinking about the whole passage. If you will recall, earlier in his ministry, Jesus sent the disciples out on a short-term mission trip. He told them, do not take provisions for a long journey. Don't take extra money with you. Don't pack a bag. Don't take extra sandals. Just go quickly and preach the kingdom. Jesus wanted his disciples to test the waters, go out and give preaching a try, and report back to me. 
The disciples did indeed test the waters, and they were excited to come back and report. And Luke tells us they were actually thrilled that even the demons were subjected to them. The disciples were like new recruits who had passed over the first hurdle. And that's all very well and good. The disciples, both the twelve and the seventy, got a taste for ministry. But that short-term mission is about to morph into something else entirely. Look at what Jesus said in the upper room to the disciples, beginning with verse 35. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, But now... Let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He's going to a cross. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Well, that sounds a whole lot more permanent and much more ominous. Pack up for a long ministry. And by the way, there will be dangers along the way, so consider packing a sword. How far will these disciples have to go on their next mission? And the answer is, we know the answer. The local mission suddenly becomes a global mission by the time we reach the end of the four Gospels. When Jesus died and resurrected three days later, he suddenly expanded exponentially the geographical boundaries of their mission. Take my Gospel now, where? To the ends of the earth. And would you just consider one example Good church tradition tells us the Apostle Thomas traveled as far as Kerala on the southern tip of India preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Right, Joseph? And by foot, that's a distance of about 4,200 miles from Jerusalem. 4,200 miles. So let's put that in perspective. Jesus, on one occasion, went as far north as Caesarea Philippi. That's just north of Israel. That's roughly 130 miles north of Jerusalem. When Jesus sent the disciples out on their initial mission trip, they likely didn't travel more than 100 miles at most, and probably far fewer. A 100-mile mission suddenly becomes a journey of 4,200 miles for one of those disciples. Well, you don't walk 4,200 miles preaching the gospel and occasionally check back in in Jerusalem. In fact, some of the disciples would never see each other again after their departure. So Jesus in Luke 22 is preparing his disciples for a different kind of mission altogether, a mission to reach the ends of the earth a mission that will only terminate when Jesus returns in glory. So, are the disciples now ready for this mission? Well, glance back at Luke 22 and verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. 
Uh, that is a very old dispute that followed the disciples all the way from Galilee right down to Jerusalem. And it erupted again right there in the upper room. They are not ready. And how about Peter? Is he ready? Hardly. Look at verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter's not ready. Friends, if the disciples are all, are this ill prepared, how on earth is Jesus going to launch his mission? Ever seen this old video footage of the early days of rocketry when a rocket just sort of starts off the ground? gets about three feet off the ground and explodes and comes crashing back down. If I had to guess, I'd say the disciples in the upper room are about ready to crash and burn. So, how will they launch? Well, let's go back to John chapter 15. And remember, he has introduced the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. And in John chapter 15 now, he says, In a word, you must abide. None of his mission will be accomplished unless his disciples abide or remain in him. Jesus is blunt at the end of verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I don't want to suggest that abiding in Christ merely concerns our Great Commission work, although our Great Commission work is part of abiding in Christ. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, the meaning will become clear enough in time. The disciples still have a great deal to learn about what it means for the Holy Spirit to come at Pentecost. They have a great deal still to learn about our union with Christ through His death and resurrection. And later, New Testament Revelation will shed considerable light on what it means to abide in Christ. But for now, let's simply acknowledge that the whole of the Christian life whether that involves our evangelism, our evangelism efforts or attempts to mortify the sin that remains with us or our business of pursuing our vocations or whatever it is, it all comes down to this. You must abide in Christ. So having said that, let's at least get a start on what it means by working at our passage. And Jesus begins to explain what it means using the illustration of a vine. That's verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the, is the vine dresser. I want to say husbandman. That's the King James, isn't it? Now, I have heard numerous explanations of Jesus as the vine in my lifetime. And many of them are quite good and quite applicable but I'm actually not sure that I've ever heard it explained the way that Jesus probably intended. Our immediate tendency when reading these words is to picture an actual vine, like a grapevine filling out a trellis. Or perhaps we picture ivy that snakes its way up a brick wall on a stately old building. And all that's very well and good. And what we tend to do is we begin with the image of the vine, and then we relate it immediately to Jesus. It is quite possible, however, that what first comes to our minds is not precisely what Jesus was talking about. 
the image actually points elsewhere first before it even points to Jesus. And that's because in the Old Testament, the vine was a very well-established metaphor for Israel, God's covenanted people. Israel was the vine, and God cared for Israel. So what Jesus probably has in mind is a shift from Israel to Jesus as the vine. Jesus is the new Israel. Now let me show you that. Would you turn to Isaiah chapter 5? The image of the vine shows up in Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, Isaiah 15, Isaiah 27, Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 12, Ezekiel 15, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 19, and Hosea 10. We will not look at all those passages, but that's a lot of references to the vine. And when Israel is called God's vine, the texts go on to emphasize her unfruitfulness. Israel's a vine, but an unproductive vine. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, writes, Wherever historic Israel is referred to under this figure, it is the vine's failure to produce good fruit that is emphasized, along with the corresponding threat of God's judgment on the nation. Let me, for instance, read Psalm chapter 80. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and it shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it. And all that move in the field feed on it. God planted his vine in the land and then allowed it to be destroyed. Or would you look at Isaiah 5 now in verse 1? Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Israel was God's unproductive vineyard, God's fruitless vine. 
He loved Israel and nurtured Israel and protected Israel. What more could God have possibly done for His people than the care He lavished upon His vine? And yet Israel refused to produce good fruit. She produced wild and edible, worthless fruit. Worse, Israel produced bloodshed and unrighteousness. What a shocking indictment of God's chosen people redeemed from the land of Egypt and planted there in a prosperous land. Would you turn now to Ezekiel chapter 19? And while you turn, listen to Jeremiah 2 and verse 21. Jeremiah says that I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Both Isaiah and Jeremiah condemn Israel for becoming an unproductive vine. Ezekiel also describes what God does with the dead wood of an unproductive vine. Listen to Ezekiel 15, beginning with verse 6. What did I say? I said 19, didn't I? Well, you can go back to 15. Here's Ezekiel 15 and verse 6. We'll come to 19. Ezekiel 15 and verse 6. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Israel has become a wild vine, fit for the fires of destruction, rather than a cultivated fruit-producing vine. All right, and now go to Ezekiel chapter 19. Ezekiel 19, the prophet will go on to lament the mother of the princes of evil. Look at verse 10. Your mother was like a vine in a vineyard, planted by the water, fruitful and full of branches by reason of abundant water. Its strong stems became ruler's scepters. It towered aloft among the thick boughs. It was seen in its height with the mass of its branches, but the vine was plucked up in fury, cast down to the ground. The east wind dried up its fruit. They were stripped off and withered. As for a strong stem, fire consumed it. Now it is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. And fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots and has consumed its fruits. So that there remains... In it, no strong stem, no scepter for ruling. Where once a vine thrived, it was fruitful, and it drank from the rich springs of water. The vine is now worthless. The vine just needs to be ripped out by the roots and cast aside to wither and die. The vine should be cast into the desert as worthless and fruitless. And now would you turn to Hosea 10, verses 1 and 2. Hosea also indicts Israel using the vine metaphor. The more Israel prospered as a vine, the more her children went out and built altars to false gods. The more idolatrous she became. So Hosea 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Look at 
Friends, that is the story of the Old Testament. Israel becomes strong and Israel becomes idolatrous. In fact, more idolatrous in the land than the people God drove out of the land. So of all that in place, let's turn back to John chapter 15. And I could actually read several more passages, but I think I've given you enough at this point to suggest that Jesus is actually not introducing a new metaphor. Psalms, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Hosea, all use the vine image to depict Israel's faithlessness. Jesus is invoking a well-established metaphor widely used by the prophets to describe God's care for Israel and her rejection of God. Yahweh planted Israel in the land and nourished her as a vine. Israel became a wild, idolatrous vine, and Yahweh rooted Israel right out of the land and cast her aside. Friends, that's the Old Covenant. That's what happened. So read again verse 1, together with verse 2, and see whether they sound like Yahweh in the Old Testament, casting away Israel as a corrupt vine. Jesus says, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. That sounds exactly like the Old Testament. So friends, I I just can't read those words with all that Old Testament background in mind and wonder whether Jesus is doing a lot more here than we first imagined. Now remember that Jesus has already inaugurated the new covenant in the upper room with a new meal. And Jeremiah told us a new covenant was necessary. Why? Because Israel broke the old covenant. Israel rebelled against God's law written in stone. So Jeremiah told us God would have to transform their hearts and write it on flesh. So what does it all mean? Well, if you are looking for organic religious life, don't connect yourself any longer to Judaism or her temple. Why? Well, two days earlier, Jesus predicted the entire destruction of the temple. Every last stone, he said, will come down. That was two days earlier he said that. Don't look to the religious leaders like the Jewish Sanhedrin. They will put Jesus on trial later this very same night. Don't look at the Pharisees who have already plotted Jesus' death on numerous occasions. There is no organic light to be found in the false Judaism of the first century. Two days earlier, two days earlier, Jesus cursed the fig tree, a symbol of religious Judaism on the eastern side of town. And tomorrow he will be crucified on a cursed tree on the west side of Jerusalem. God the Father, though, now has a new vine. So don't look to the old vine. Where is the new vine? Well, Jesus, it's emphatic. I am the vine. Don't incorporate yourself into Judaism. Attach yourself to the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, my friends, is the new Israel. He is the new covenant. He is the new temple. Destroy this temple and I'll resurrect it in three days. He is our new prophet, priest, and king. And you recall John chapter 1? Don't go to Bethel any longer. 
That is where Jacob, or Israel as he was named, saw heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of, uh, 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 on the ladder down to earth. Israel, though, turned Bethel into a shrine of idolatry. In fact, it was at Bethel that Jeroboam erected one of those two golden calves. Here's what Jesus said in John 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending where? Don't go to Bethel. I'm the Son of Man. If you're looking for abundant new life, well then graft yourself onto the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't think geographical space any longer. You don't have to go up to the land of Israel or ascend the mountain to Jerusalem's temple. All that is going away. Jesus is the flesh and blood place, the incarnation, the flesh and blood place where God and men are reconciled in the new covenant. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, of course, joining ourselves to Christ comes with a consequence. And it is also spelled out in verse 2. If you embrace Jesus as the vine, then you must embrace the Father as the vine dresser. So don't be surprised then when He purges, when He purges away unproductive branches and prunes others to guarantee more productivity. Don't be surprised if God judges the church the way He judged Israel. Don't be surprised when God the Father brings trouble into your life to refine and to purify you. That is His prerogative. He is the vine dresser. Well then, what does verse 3 mean? Jesus said, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. That language is a little bit confusing, but Jesus probably means something like when you embrace Jesus and His words, you're just off to a really good start. Like a new start, a clean start, a fresh beginning All right, that happens when you come and you embrace Christ. You embrace His new covenant. During my college years, I worked for two different tree and plant nurseries. And often in the spring, we'd have to repot some of last year's inventory that never sold. And some of those plants had become quite desiccated and droopy. And so what you had to do is pull them up out of the old pots. And in those pots, they had the roots that had gotten all mangled and tangled in this really dense sort of root ball. And what you have to do is go in and just loosen it all up and find a larger pot and get some good soil and take that old plant and put it in an entirely new pot. And you had to get a pair of pruners and you had to go in and just cut out all the dead. And for a time, those plants looked very sad after the pruning process. But give them a few months and they blossomed into very attractive plants with no deadness anywhere. Well, that seems to be somewhat of the image that Jesus has in mind. Let's just, let's just pull out the vine out of the old Judaism. That soil is no longer productive. The vine is withering and dying, so let's just prune out all the dead Let's prune out all the decaying branches and repot the vine in organic new soil. Let's start anew 
and afresh in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, admittedly, the analogy is a little difficult, and we dare not push the metaphor too far. On the one hand, Jesus himself is the true vine, not just the soil which it is planted. But the cleanness that Jesus speaks of in verse 3 seems to speak of us. And in some sense, us as the vine, or the vine branch is just getting off to a brand new start, as if we're planted in a whole new place. Another analogy is that of grafting, where we as branches are grafted into a better vine that carries nutrients from the soil right out into the branches. And that metaphor is a little bit mixed, which isn't at all unusual in Scripture. In the Bible, metaphors are mixed all the time. But one thing is really certainly clear. There is absolutely no life apart from Jesus Christ. That's the driving emphasis of the passage. There's no life apart from Jesus Christ. New life is rooted and grounded and grafted into Jesus Christ, not Israel. As New Covenant Christians, we are grafted into the life of Christ. So, verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide where? In me. And Jesus speaks of a mutual relationship, a mutual abiding. We live in Christ, and Christ lives in us. That's the only possible way to be productive. If you cut a branch from a peach tree with a cluster of peaches on it, what happens to the peaches? Immediately they just begin to shrivel up and die. There is no possible way for the fruit to grow when it is detached from its life source. The life source is now Christ. Not Israel, not her temple any longer. It is Christ. So verse 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me... You can do nothing. Don't even try. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 5 then reiterates and insists that without Christ, you will not be productive. It's really a restatement of verse 5 for emphasis. If you thought there was any way to be spiritually productive outside of Jesus Christ, well, friends, that's just not possible. In Jesus' mind, that's not even possible. And there is a movement today, and it is really gaining ground out there, to view both Judaism and Islam as sister monotheistic religions to Christianity. Were you aware of this? View Judaism and Islam as sister monotheistic religions to Christianity. Well, what do Jews and Muslims say about Jesus Christ? Without embracing Jesus Christ, friends, there is no life. There is no fruit. There is no way to be productive. You must embrace Jesus Christ. What happens to the person who seeks salvation outside of Jesus Christ? 
If you are looking for another source of life, then look at verse 6. This is your reality. If anyone does not abide in me, whether you're Jew, whether you're Muslim, whether you're Buddhist, whether you're Chinese, whatever it is, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. There is no life apart from Jesus Christ. There is no other vine that offers life. God said of Israel to the prophet Ezekiel, she was a dead vine, fit for the fires of destruction. And Jesus quite possibly is thinking Ezekiel when he says they are thrown into the fire and burned. There's life in Christ, and there's false religion, and there's no third option. So, friends, what Jesus is speaking of in these verses is what theologians call union with Christ. Jesus is preparing to go to the door. Jesus will die. He will resurrect. And then he will leave the planet behind. Nevertheless, he insists that abiding in him is our only option. Whether that involves taking the gospel to southern India or mortifying the deeds of our flesh, or becoming productive in our vocations, or committing to a local church, or serving God in any capacity whatsoever, none of it happens without our organic unity with Jesus Christ, a man who is about to disappear into the clouds. So, what then does it really mean to abide in Christ? Well, we'll have to continue to explore this concept in coming weeks. Verses 7 through 17 in particular will really sort of flesh it out for us. But let's conclude this morning by reiterating once again the truth of our union with Christ as foundational to the entire Christian life. You might actually say, excuse me, You might say that Paul's whole development of the doctrine of salvation is rooted right here in this passage. There's a sense in which Romans is really the explanation, the exploration of what Jesus was talking about right here. And that's because the term in Christ or in Him occurs approximately 215 times just in Paul's letters. Imagine that. Jesus said, abide in me. And Paul says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, over and over and over and over again. It occurs also more than 25 times in John's epistles and gospel. In addition, there are numerous instances of Paul using the similar phrase, with Christ or with him. So here's Paul, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a rising rabbinic scholar. His whole allegiance is to Judaism and her temple. And that whole allegiance was transferred unreservedly to Jesus Christ. Theologian John Murray has said, union with Christ is a central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It all comes down to this. We are united with Christ. Millard Erickson writes, union with Christ is an inclusive term for the whole of salvation. The various other doctrines are simply subparts. 
Our union with Christ, friends, is the antithesis of our union with Adam. Your union, your organic union with Adam was so close that when Adam sinned and died, you sinned and died. But for the believer, that whole organic union is transferred entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ. Likewise, Paul's organic union with apostate Judaism was transferred completely to Christ. And this is why Paul argues in Romans 6 that baptism symbolizes our union with Christ. When someone plunged you under the brim and then pulled you up again, you were testifying to this glorious truth. I am united with Jesus in His death. When Jesus died, I died. And I am united with Christ in His burial. When Jesus was buried, I was buried. And I am united with Christ that in His resurrection, when Jesus was raised, I was raised. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. So don't go back to the old covenant. Truly, truly, Jesus says, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending where? On the Son of Man. Don't return to Bethel. Come to Christ. So we pray. Our Father, we thank You for this glorious truth of our abiding with Christ. We thank You, Lord, that He has done for us what Israel never could do through her obedience and disobedience to Your law. We thank You, Lord, that in Christ we have abundant new life. And we pray, Lord, for that person here today who is not yet united with Christ. Today might be a day where they turn their eyes and look on Jesus. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.